Well, good evening. Glad you guys are here. It's good to be back. Had the out of town for a little conference last week. I really appreciate Cole filling in. He teaches a lot here, and uh, this is not the easiest class to teach. I mean, it's not you. It's not you. It's, and so, I, he did a great job, and I appreciate him filling in uh, for me last week in First Peter chapter one. So. I'm excited to get into this tonight because actually every single chapter in 1 Peter is just packed. And chapter 2 has, I just say this week and next week, chapter 2 and chapter 3 have some of the more controversial things in them. So uh, warm your fingers up to text some questions, all right? Let me say a prayer for us and we'll dive in. Lord, thank you so much for this evening. We're grateful that you brought us here, that we have the freedom in this nation to study your word, that we have the freedom in this nation to speak the truth into our culture. And Father, I pray that we would uh, show your love and spread your truth in this world that so desperately needs it. I pray your blessings on our nation. I pray your blessings on our leaders. I pray your wisdom for all the leaders of this world, that they would turn their hearts and their minds to you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here's the number for questions. It's also, I think, on your handout. You can just text those in during the class and try to answer as many questions as we can. We are, let me remind you kind of what we're doing. We're looking at the book of 1 Peter. It's called 1 Peter because it's a letter that the apostle Peter wrote. I'll show you to whom he wrote it in a moment. And it's the first letter that we have. They're just simply numbered, the first and second letters that Peter wrote. These are considered to be and are indeed more than just letters written by the apostle Peter. They're inspired word of God. One of the things you'll see in this lesson is how intimately and intricately related the ideas in the New Testament are, how closely they're linked with Jesus' teaching. That's just really not possible in a human endeavor. You really don't see that anywhere else. And so as we go through, I'll try to point out connections with the rest of the New Testament. You'll see kind of how tightly bound it is, how unified. Well, we kind of looked at the life of Peter and just put this into that context. If you remember Peter, on the night Jesus was betrayed, we called this from failure to faithful because all those 12 disciples were essentially failures. I mean, their faith failed. You know, remember Peter was saying, hey, these guys might desert you, but not me. I'm, I'll die with you. And, you know, he gets arrested and where is he? Peter's nowhere to be seen. You know, they, they were afraid. Their faith was not strong and they weren't willing to go to death. And so they fled. Of course, Jesus restores them, gives them the commission, and says, go, take my word to the world. And then for the rest of their lives, for all of them, they showed what faith looked like. Peter was uh, working in this area. This letter is written to churches up in this area, in what is now Turkey. And you'll see when you open the letter in chapter 1, he's writing to people here, and he spent years setting up churches in that area of what's today modern-day Turkey. And so he's writing this letter to encourage them and instruct them. And that's what's going on in the letter of 1 Peter. He did this for a lot of years, and eventually he was arrested for what he was preaching. He wasn't arrested for robbery or insurrection or he didn't say we're going to start a revolution. He was arrested for preaching. He had made his way to Rome and under the Emperor Nero, I'm just giving you a little recap, a quick recap of his life, he was preaching in Rome and was arrested 
and was eventually executed by the Emperor Nero, obviously sometime before 68 AD when Nero killed himself. So we tend to think of Peter dying probably around 67, about the same time as the Apostle Paul, who was also imprisoned in Rome for preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. So they were both killed in the reign of Nero. So this letter is probably written mid-60s AD. So think 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. This is when Peter is writing this. He's writing it near the end of his life and the end of his ministry. Looking back on how he started with faith that failed and then faithful to literally death being crucified at the end of his life. And so his story personally is one from failure to faithfulness. And when we read his letters, you're going to see he, he talks about that a little bit. He wants to talk about this journey. He was on a journey through his life. His first, if you think about it, it's really interesting looking back on it. His first confrontation with authority, with the authority of the Romans who crucified Jesus was to turn and run away. And at the end of his life, his confrontation with Nero, the ultimate authority in the world at that time, was faithful, faithful even to the point of death. And so you just look at his life and you think, you know, that's us to some extent. It's there are times when our faith fails too. And I take a lot of encouragement from Peter's life. If you look at uh, the scriptures in chapter 1, he talks about kind of us being on a journey too. In chapter 1, you see, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so you also should be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I'm holy. But watch what he's saying in this passage. I just want to highlight a couple of things here for you. In this passage, he basically says we started out in ignorance and we're going to end up being holy. We have the evil desires, if you will, the sinful desires. He's going to talk more about that. And that's what we were. That's what we were when we, as Paul says in Ephesians, we used to follow the God of this world. And he says, but you have been called and you are going to become holy. So we began in ignorance and sinful desire. He says, you're on a journey just like I was. And the end of your journey is the same as mine, and that is holiness. So we're moving to holiness. Think about Romans 12 too. This is Paul writing. He says, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see the same thing in this passage. He says, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you used to live without knowledge, without knowing God. And so you kind of see in all of the New Testament this idea of we were in ignorance slaves, literally slaves is the word the New Testament uses, to our evil desires, to sin. But we have been called to be holy. We've been called to be different. So Peter's journey really mirrors ours a little bit. He says it starts with a new birth. This is the same thing Jesus told Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus, the Jewish leader, comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, there's a sense in which there's a new birth. Paul, in Romans, talks about our old self has died, and we've been raised to walk in a new life. And then listen to what Peter says. He says, you have been born again not of perishable seed, in other words, not in any physical way, but of imperishable, 
How did you get born? Through the living, enduring word of God. He says, because really, your physical lives, all men are like, uh, like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. But the word of the Lord stands forever. In other words, we're going to wither and die, and all things earthly do not endure. He said, but you were born of the word of God, the truth of God's word, and that never fades away. And you see, he says, this is the word that was preached to you. He says, therefore, rid yourselves of evil desires, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, and like newborn babies, spiritually newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk. In other words, crave that feeding you get from God through the word so you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted how good the Lord is. I wanted you to see in this passage that there's a sense of movement and as you read through this, I want you to, as you read the scripture, I hope you go back and read First Peter uh, chapter 2 this week. I want you to see the movement. I want you to see the connection with the rest of the New Testament. We were in sin. We were born again spiritually through the word that was preached to us, the truth of what Jesus Christ did for us. And now we are on a journey. We're growing towards holiness. But... We have an enemy who does not want us to be free from sin or sinful desires, who does not want us to move to holiness. Jesus called him the ruler of this present world. He called Satan the ruler of this present world. Peter echoes this. He said, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, meaning you don't really belong to this world. The ruler of this world is not your king, is not your, uh, your master. He says, abstain from those sinful desires which war against your soul. That, passage, that, that phrase, which war against your soul, is really captures the essence of the Christian life and, the, and really the big picture of what's actually happening here. Sometimes I think we think of becoming a Christian as, okay, I made a lot of mistakes in my life, and I just need my life to go better, and so God, forgive me for all those mistakes I made, and I'd like to follow you because I think following you, I'll make better decisions, I'll have straighter, whiter teeth and get better grades on my ACT test. You know, we kind of think, hey, following Christ will just make my life go better. Well, that's true. But it's not a cause, it's an effect. The scripture says there's actually a battle for your very soul, your destiny, your eternal future. There's a battle going on. You used to be in ignorance, not knowing God, living in your sinful desires as slaves to sin. Whether you consciously know it or not, people who don't know Christ, everyone serves some master. Everyone serves a master. And God says you either serve Christ, which leads to life, or you serve sin, which leads to death. And this is Peter kind of confirming that. He said, turn away from the sinful desires which are warring against your soul. That really has some implications for the Christian life. I mean, two that just jump to mind. Number one, and this hopefully comforts you, is Christians are not exempt from temptation. Christians are not exempt 
from evil desires. I don't know about you, but when I became a Christian a little bit later in life, uh, I mean, not like I didn't grow up in church, so it was a little bit later in my life, and I became a Christian, and nobody told me what you're supposed to expect. And so I wake up the next morning, and I realize, hey, why are not all my problems gone? Why are not all my temptations gone? You know, why am I still battling some of these sin habits or sinful desires, as Peter calls it? Why is that still happening to me? And then you begin to read the Word, and you realize we're not exempt from this war in the soul. There's somebody who wants to drag us back into the slavery of the sins that captured us. So it's comforting to know that that's a normal part of our lives, is we are in a process called sanctification, which simply means becoming holy. Remember the passage? Peter said, you're going to go from ignorance to holiness. This passage to becoming holy is called sanctification. And all that is is God pruning us. You know, he says, abstain from sinful desires. Other places he's going to talk about turn away from sinful desires. The book of Hebrews says, go away from the sin that wants to entangle you and trip you up. Paul says, like you're taking off a jacket, take off the old sin and put it aside. You see those, all those images that we are in a process of becoming holy, becoming more like Christ. Number one thing, that's normal. It's normal to have this warring in your soul. So don't think there's something wrong with you that I have desires or temptations. That's part of it. But the second thing it tells us is this. Not only are we not exempt, but we can't be passive. We are actually on a journey to holiness. We're going somewhere. Because sometimes you can't, we can think of our salvation like sort of like having a Sam's card. You know, I filled out the application, I walked down the aisle, or, hey, it's easy these days. You don't even have to walk the aisle most of the time, right? But I made a decision for Christ, and so now I'm saved, and I got my card, put it in my wallet, I'm good. You know, it's a very passive way of thinking about being a Christ follower. There's a reason they call it following Christ, because it's an active pursuit. And you really get that idea uh, from this passage, the idea that there's a war going on, there's a battle you're trying, if you're not moving forward, you're probably getting dragged back into the old habits of our lives. So it's important to know, number one, it's normal to feel temptation and evil desires. And it's also important that we realize we're in a war here. I need to keep moving toward Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Peter's got a really good sense of motion in this passage that I really like. So we are on a journey we have an enemy that wants to stop us. So the way chapter 2 breaks down, let me just frame this up. First, Peter's going to give us a principle. He's going to tell us, here's what God is doing with you. In other words, we're on this journey. Let me tell you what God is in the middle of doing with you. And then he's going to say, therefore, here's what you need to be doing as you walk through this world. So there's a principle, what God is doing, then there are a couple of applications, what we are doing in the world. So let's, I just wanted you to see how that broke into two pieces. So let me uh, jump into the first part, because I think most of our questions are going to be on the application. This is a long passage. 
1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. But listen to this journey. This is how Peter's going to describe what God's trying to do in your life. This is a really pretty passage. As you come to him, as you are headed toward Christ on this journey, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. By the way, all through the Old Testament, in the New Testament, Jesus, Peter preaches this. There's this reference to a prophecy, which he's going to quote here in a second, that God has chosen a stone, a foundation, to build a new temple, if you will. But the people rejected that stone and said, no, that's not the foundation we want to build on. And so that's the prophetic reference to this idea that Jesus is the stone that God chose to build uh, his kingdom on. So he said that living stone, Jesus, was rejected by men, but he was chosen by God and he was precious to God. He said, you also are living stones and God is building you into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You can offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Notice how he's using this temple analogy, you know, physically like a physical cornerstone, which by the way, cornerstones of the temple, Herod's temple, are massive stones. But you get this cornerstone and he said, you're kind of like that, but it's not a temple, it's not a building. You're being built into a spiritual building, like the kingdom of God. So he's saying this prophecy is coming true in Jesus and in us. He said, listen, Scripture says this, I'm laying a stone in Zion, in Jerusalem, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That's Jesus. What did Jesus say? Trust in me. Believe, and you'll be saved. He's fulfilling this prophecy uh, from the Old Testament. The stone the builders rejected has actually become the capstone, the most important stone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble over Jesus because they disobey the message. But you, look at verse 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who belong to God, so that you may praise the one who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Remember John chapter 1? The idea that Jesus is the light that comes into the world and shines. Jesus says later in John, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never stumble around in the darkness. You see how Peter's picking up on these ideas and this imagery for us. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You get some really great lessons out of this, but he begins to say, this is what God is doing with you and me. You may not understand it, you may not see it, he said, but I'm going to tell you, it's like Jesus laid the cornerstone for this beautiful spiritual building. He said, and you are each living stones, part of that. In other words, what's that saying? It said, God has chosen each one of you, every follower of Christ. God is picking that living stone. It also means he has a purpose He's putting you in a place. You are important to what he is doing and what he's building. You were chosen. You have a destiny. You have a purpose. He, it's what you do is important in God's plans. He has a plan for you and for me. It really puts a high value on Christ's followers. It says, look, he cared enough to send his son for you. 
We all know that as Christians and say, see how great God loved us? He sent his only son to die for us. That's true, but that's not the end of the story. He also cares enough about you to make you that living stone, to have a purpose in your life, to bring you from ignorance and sinful desire ultimately to holiness, to really be in the image of Jesus Christ. So God isn't through with you when you become saved, to use the terminology that's popular. God's just getting started with you when you begin that journey. And I love this passage because Peter wants us to understand, look, you think about Peter's life. He goes, listen to my life. I was a stone everybody rejected. I was a failure of faith. And God didn't throw me away. He not only gave me a second chance, he has been with me all my life, building me into a man of faith. That's what he's trying to convey to us, is his life is a little picture of our lives, that God was working in his life, God is working in your life. He has a purpose for us. One thing here I want to talk about, uh, oh, priesthood. I need to hit the priesthood thing, just because it's a big deal between Protestants and Catholics. This, you are a royal priesthood. This isn't the only place in the New Testament you'll see this. But that, is, that fundamental idea is why we believe we have direct access to God. You can see the imagery here. He's, he's, he's comparing us to the physical temple. The temple had priests. The temple had sacrifices. He said, you're a living stones. You're a spiritual building. You're offering spiritual sacrifices to God. You're our very lives are spiritual sacrifices to God. But he's saying, you're all priests. Used to be, they would go to the priest and say, intercede for me with God. Take this sacrifice, you know, pray for me with God. This is why, and then it's a very biblical idea, is that we are all, quote, priests of God. Meaning, there's no, nothing in between us and God anymore. We have direct access to God. So you get that strong sense from the royal priesthood. But there's one passage in here I want to point out to you because it's going to become really, I think it's going to be, you'll, you'll see how essential this is once we talk about it. But this idea of a stone that causes men to stumble. That word for stumble is our word uh, scandal. I mean, literally, our word scandal in Greek means stumble. And so what is he saying? He said, Jesus is a stone that people trip over, can't seem to climb over it. They stumble over this stone because Jesus is scandalous, if you will. I'm not trying to make too much out of it. I just want to put a little different twist on it. In what sense did, do people stumble over Jesus? Well, just think about our society right now. Whether you're a Christian in North Korea preaching the word People have heartburn with that. Whether you're in China preaching the word of God, people stumble over it. It's kind of scandalous. It's not okay. Even in America, people stumble over the message of Jesus Christ. It's offensive. The message is offensive. Like I always say, the gospel offends people. Hopefully we as Christians are not offensive people. But the message of Christ, that's what he's saying. It's not Jesus personally. It's the truth that Jesus spoke caused people to stumble. It was scandalous to them. Both the love of Christ was scandalous and the insistence that God is God and you are not. I mean, telling people the truth scandalizes them. 
telling people how much God loves them is scandalous. Like, why would he love me that much? That's ridiculous. I know, it's scandalous, isn't it? So you get this sense of Jesus as a stumbling block. You get this idea of the word as something that, that's scandalous. It's difficult. Well, how is that true for you and for me? Peter's going to touch on some issues in the ancient world that are, they might as well translate almost exactly into the modern world. So the principle is this. What is God doing? He is taking each one of us who are Christ followers. You are a living stone. He says, I'm going to make you holy. You're going to be sanctified. I have a purpose and I have a plan for you. I know who you are. You're not a cog in a big machine. You are precious, chosen, and I have a plan for you. He said, that's what God is doing with you. Well, what's the application of that? Well, that's what Peter's going to turn to in the rest of chapter 2. He's going to say, so, given that that's who you are and what you're doing, what does that mean for how you interact in the world? In other words, let's apply that. What does that mean about, since I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, I'm a building block in the great spiritual temple of God, I'm an alien and a stranger in this world, I don't owe my allegiance to the ruler of this world, I owe my allegiance to God. Peter, actually in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he's going to go on and say, okay, so what? What then does that mean about us living out our lives? He's going to get really practical. Well, this idea, I've got a story that I heard, uh, I don't think it's true, but it would be really cool if it was. Uh, it was told to me one time, this kind of illustrates sort of like Christians in the world. There was a guy who worked in an automobile factory, and he was a great employee. He got there early, he worked hard during the day, he would stay late, you know, clock out and still keep working, he was late, and all the managers would say, boy, that guy is good. He's like the last one to leave and the first one to get here. And they thought, this guy's a great employee. Well, unbeknownst to them, he was also had this little plan. And so every day, he would take one part of the car home with him. He left last, you know, not that hard. So he would take one part of the car home with him. Over the course of a year, he had enough parts to build a car. And so he has a car. He effectively stole this car one part at a time, right? And all the while they think, this is one of the best employees that we've got. Now, maybe that's not the best description of Christians in the world, but it gives you the idea of sometimes people look like they're on the same path, but they're not on the same path, are they? I mean, people have different intents. Well, that's kind of like Christians in the world. Are we called to, let's, hey, let's all go to a monastery and separate ourselves from the world? No. What did the Great Commission say? Jesus said, here's what I want you to do. Go into all the world. Make disciples of all the nations, right? Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we're supposed to go out there into the world. But at the same time, we're, we're aliens in this world. We don't serve the God of this world. We don't follow the sinful desires of this world. We have a different king. We're going a different direction. There's this really interesting idea about Christians being in the world but not of the world. And in your Monday through Friday, day-to-day -day work, what that really comes down to is you're going to go work hard in the world, you're going to have friends in the world, but really you're actually going a different direction than most of the people in the world. 
You're headed for a different destiny, and you're going a different direction. And every now and then, it really pops up. What Peter's going to do is he picks, and where you tend to see this is when the gospel confronts the social order. And it doesn't matter the social order where. If there's a social order in Syria, North Korea, China, Russia, or the United States of America, when Christians come up against the social structure, whatever it is, you will begin to see, wait a minute, we're different. We're not actually going the same direction. Peter picks three huge social things. Not the only thing he could pick, but he picks three examples in his culture to say, here is an example of how you march to the beat of a different drummer, if you will. The three things he picks are this. A Christian's obligation to the government. In other words, if we serve God who is our king, what are we supposed to do about governments? The second is slavery. Slavery was a big deal in the ancient world, and it really represents for us this whole idea of social classes and oppression. How do you deal with that? Because every culture has oppression. Not every culture has slavery, but every culture has oppression. And then thirdly, how does this affect the most intimate, worldly, human relationship, husbands and wives? So he's going to pick those three things and say, I'm going to now apply this principle to your day-to-day, Monday through Friday kind of life. So let me pause and take a question, and then we're going to jump in to the first two of those. Before we leave this section, what is the difference between being a foundation stone for God and being a capstone? Well, they're two different images, and Peter's just putting them together. You know, he's kind of mixing his metaphors just a little bit here, but they're, all, they're just all kinds of prophecies. I mean, Jesus prophesied as, you know, the lamb that was slain, you know, the Passover lamb. In other words, there are all kinds of images that are used to describe Jesus. One of them is the foundation stone. The other is the crowning glory, the capstone. It's just two different images to explain, you know, who Jesus is. And these are just the building images. The Old Testament tries to use all kinds of different metaphors to help us understand who Jesus is. That's a good question. But I don't think there's any theological significance to it. Well, let's jump into these two. First is this. Submit yourself. This is how he says this principle plays itself out in interaction with earthly authorities. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil or sin. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king or honor the emperor. Well, now that's an interesting thing to say. And there are several key ideas in there. Paul is going to talk about the exact same idea in Romans chapter 13. And it's, again, very practical. It says, given who you are, you serve God. Live as servants of God. Well, then, what is my obligation to earthly authority? And the answer is, submit yourselves to earthly authorities. So let's talk about a couple of key ideas while you think about that, because there are a lot of questions for us in this situation. 
The first is, uh, the first thing I'd say to you is, submit yourselves. That word, that's a great translation in the NIV, because it's not the same word as obey, although it clearly does mean to obey, but obedience is a word that's used for, listen, you just do what's right. Submit yourselves has this idea of voluntarily submitting to something. In other words, I love this translation because it captures the Greek word, which is you voluntarily put yourself under the authority of that. We do it all the time in our society. I mean, we, think of, we don't think of submission as a good thing. We do it all the time. We submit ourselves to all kinds of rules for all kinds of different reasons. Sometimes fear of punishment, sometimes because we realize that's a good rule. It helps us all to live together better. But for various reasons, we submit ourselves. And that's the first thing. God's not calling us to obey out of fear. He said, no, you voluntarily submit yourselves to the governing authorities. Why? What's our motivation? Is it because the government's good? Well, that certainly wasn't the case for Peter, who's writing this, or Paul, who wrote the same thing. They're living under Nero, the guy who's going to kill them. One of the most oppressive governments in history. Not the only one by any means, but they're at least in the top three. I mean, seriously, they're contenders for most brutal, oppressive government in history. And yet, they're writing this in that circumstance. They're not in America and saying, hey, this is a pretty free nation. This is a pretty just nation. This is the best nation on earth. So I tell you what, why don't you voluntarily submit yourselves and be good citizens here? That's not where they're writing this. They're writing it 180 degrees different than that. So why? The point is, it isn't about the government. It's about the Lord's sake. He said, voluntarily submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. That's my second observation. Third observation is this. Governments have a purpose in God's plan, and that is punish those who do wrong, commend those who do right. In other words, there's a mandate. That's a very simplified format. It's not like they're going to write a 20-page document. But fundamentally, we're called to voluntarily submit ourselves for the sake of the Lord, not because of the gov anything the government. They may be good, they may be bad. Submit ourselves. And the government itself has a purpose and a plan in God's scheme for what he's doing in this world. And the legitimate function of government is to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Paul in Romans 13 goes into a little more detail than this, but it's exactly the same idea. So Christians are called to submit ourselves to earthly authorities for Jesus' sake, and the government has a legitimate mandate. Now, some of the questions are, first of all, when is it permissible to not submit yourself to the government then? What if the government isn't fulfilling its legitimate mandate? And what laws do we need to obey, do we not need to obey? We can talk about that, but if you don't have questions, I'm not going to. But basically, we can talk about that, but I also want us to not just go to the negative and flip this around. Fundamentally, what this passage is saying is basically be good citizens. Be upstanding citizens for the Lord's sake. Do it voluntarily, and the result 
is basically that other people will see and you will be a good reflection on God. Now, first of all, don't kid ourselves. By being good citizens, that doesn't mean people are going to love us. Paul and Peter were both good citizens. I don't think they broke any laws. They weren't arrested for, again, rebellion or anything like that. They were arrested unjustly simply for telling the truth, what we'd call religious free speech, right, which didn't exist in the Roman Empire. And they were killed for that. Well, that was an unjust act. And yet, and yet, God still calls them to be good citizens because he says, it serves my purposes in the world. That makes sense? In other words, remember the principle? God's doing something here. He's not just standing still. He's building something, and you are part of what he's building. And part of then that application is, okay, here's what I need you to do. I need you basically to submit yourselves, for my sake, to authorities. They have a legitimate function, and even if they're not always fulfilling that function, though, it's important to my plans that you begin to look like the Lord. He's going to get specific in the next point and talk about Jesus. Because if you think about it, if you think about who is the ultimate, really honestly the ultimate uh, scene of injustice is the savior of the world dies on a cross for the very unjust people that put him there. I mean, it's kind of the ultimate in injustice. It's God just really turning things upside down. And so then he says to us, I'm not necessarily asking you to go on a cross. I'm certainly not asking you to die for the sins of the world. He said, but I am asking you to model yourself, to become like Christ, and to submit yourselves to earthly authorities. The problem we have with that is we tend to keep wanting to judge the earthly authorities. Well, are they worth submitting to? Is this law a good law? Is this a just law? Is this government a just government? You know, and there, there is such a thing as a just war. I think there are reasons that Christians should indeed resist the government, but not because we just don't like it, and not just because it's unjust. That's what he's trying to say here, is they're living in a really unjust situation. Jesus went through an incredibly unjust situation, and God's saying, no, that's, that's really not a reason to do that. I need you to stay with my program. I think you, I need you to emulate Jesus Christ. So let me pause there for a second and see what questions. I mean, it's a straightforward idea. This is just what the Bible says about it. But we sometimes want to wrestle with putting it into practice, and that's normal. God doesn't tell us, do this, don't do this. Vote this way, don't vote that way. But he does give us the principle that says, given that I have this plan, here's how I want you to interact with earthly authorities. Your bias your default position is, submit yourselves, for my sake, to earthly authorities. Question? Uh, what are we to do when submitting to earthly authority would conflict with the teachings of Jesus? And is it enough to avoid complying, or are we required to step out and take a stand, even at risk to ourselves? Yeah, great question. Let's talk about, let's explore that boundary just a little bit. Um, first of all, Let's not isolate ourselves from all the Christians that came before us. What Christians did in the past isn't always right. 
It's not inspired like the Word of God. If Christians did something different than this, that doesn't make it right. This is the inspired Word of God. But we look back over history, you could ask yourself this. What did Peter and Paul do? What did the Christians who lived in the 250 years after them and were killed by the tens of thousands for what they believed, what did they do? I think it's instructive, and I think it helps answer this question. When do you step out and say, no? And when do you submit yourselves? They, what you see the early Christians doing is they basically drew the line with proclaiming the truth. What's their mission? Who's their king? Jesus Christ. What did he tell you to do? Go into all the world, make disciples of all the nation. In other words, you're going to go talk about the good news of Jesus Christ. That was non-negotiable. They would drag Christians up onto stages like this. I mean, their lighting wasn't as good, but it's basically a stage like this. So back in ancient times, they would literally drag Christians up here, and they would say to them, is that here, and the executioner's there, and they basically would say, you need to worship Caesar as God. You need to confess Caesar as God. You need to deny Christ. They would always have something unfair. And they said, no, and they lopped their heads off. And they bring the next one up and said, you see that? He's still here. You see the blood on the sword? I mean, I'm not making this up. This is in the church fathers. This is a matter of history. They say, now, you curse Christ, and you live, you don't, and you die. And they died by the tens of thousands. Eusebius, I know I'm getting on a, a tear here, but this is, you need to think about what Christians have done before. It's important to us. Eusebius, church historian, fourth century, he says, there were so many Christians being killed. First of all, they had to swap out the executioners because they got tired. He said, and not only that, when they ran out of people in the line, Christians, this is unbelievable, Christians in the crowd would walk up on the stage and say, I'm a Christian too. And they killed them. It got so bad that the non-Christians said, enough, enough. I mean, their bloodlust was sated for this. And the Roman Empire was overcome by the year 313, whatever year, they, however you want to date the, the Constantinian deal there, but fundamentally, Roman Empire becomes Christian, and no Christian ever picks up a sword and tries to rebel. What was the one thing that was really non-negotiable to them? Go speak the truth of Christ into the culture. That's an example of a non-negotiable. Now, did they go down to the DMV and get their driver's license and pay their $20, you know, whether they thought it was right or not? Yes, they did. Did they take up arms and say, we're going to go rebel against this government and overthrow the emperor? No, they didn't. But there were certain non-negotiables. So I realize that was long-winded. But I want us to think about how have Christians carried this out in the past? Sometimes we get what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. In other words, we look back in time and we're kind of snobs. We think nobody was ever as smart as we were. Nobody's ever been in the situation we're in. Well, actually, 2,000 years of Christians have been in a lot of similar situations. We can learn a lot from that. So that would be a great example of the one big thing. I know Laura's thinking, if all these questions are that wordy, we're not going to get through them all. Yeah, she's nodding. Yeah. And so, are we to submit ourselves to the laws of men? Would they have participated in abortion or legal homosexuality? Yeah, so let's talk about, the, I mean, those two are kind of hot buttons, but there are so many other things. We, 
we pick on certain things. And by the way, we've got to quit picking on certain sins. I mean, all sin is sin. But let me just take these two examples. The idea of abortion. Would a Christian, a Christ follower, if basically, if the government said you have to commit an abortion, should you, would you do that? Well, first of all, let me just frame this up in a pretty simple way that most people would think. You don't even have to necessarily be Christian to think this. If you think that's murder, then absolutely not. I mean, there, I mean you don't even have to be Christian to think that's the case. If you think that's murder, then absolutely not. What about, I don't actually know what the homosexuality thing is. Should you become homosexual and engage in a homosexual lifestyle? That has anything to do with the government. That has more to do with this. Should you, probably what that's asking is, Will we then obey the laws of the government on moral, social issues with which we think are in disagreement with the Bible? That's probably what I think that's asking. And there are a lot of those. There are a lot of things that are immoral, meaning God says this is not righteous, this is sinful, and yet our government says, yes, but it's legal. Christian position to that is, well, will you do those things? No. The fact that it's legal doesn't make it right, and we serve that king. The question probably revolves around, well, then, do we shun the people who do those things? Well, think about the other command your king gave you. Go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations. He didn't say, go find the nice people. Make disciples of them. Go find the people who have their act together. Go find the people who seem kind of moral. No. You go into all the world and preach the good news to everybody. We need to go rub elbows with everybody. Now, our conduct needs to follow the guidelines of our king. So I don't know if that answered the question, but we need to go mix with everybody. Saying, I won't be around you because you do things that I think are immoral actually keeps us from fulfilling that command our king gave us. And that is, yeah, those are exactly the people that, remember what Jesus said when the Pharisees came and said, why are you hanging around with sinners? You, do you approve of them? Jesus like, are you kidding? Of course not. How can I approve of sin, either in my life or anybody else's life? We repent of sin. He said, well, then why are you hanging around with them? He said, it's not the healthy people that need a doctor. It's the sick people that need a doctor. What he's saying is, it's all of us sinners that need to hear the good news. So we need to get out into the world, even with people that do things that that we think violate God's law. That's who we're called to go speak to. Good question. Do you know if Bonhoeffer struggled with this section of Scripture, with submitting ourselves, and if so, how he reconciled that? Yeah, I do not know. I mean, you read Bonhoeffer, you'll get the sense of his struggle. Dietrich Bonhoeffer basically rebelled, if you will, against the Nazi regime. That's an interesting question, and it is a matter of conscience. I mean, there's no one person that can say in any given situation, this is what you must do, because that scripture doesn't say that, but it does say, come let us reason together. Let us, this is our default position, is to obey. It needs to be an extreme situation where they're not. A personal, I'm now gonna move into the realm of personal opinion. I'm gonna give you my understanding of this. That does not mean that's binding on you. But I think sometimes where you get beyond this idea, in other words, God says, no, the right thing to do is to resist. 
is when you see, not just laws I don't like, uh, immoral laws, uh, injustice, but when you see millions of Jews being gassed, and I actually fill in the blank, millions of anybody being gassed, it doesn't matter who they are. When you see oppression to the point where it is just so evil, Christians have traditionally understood that there are those kinds of things where we, the right thing for us to do is to go try to protect innocent people from evil. That's how I think Bonhoeffer understood what he was doing. It's not whether he liked the Nazi regime or not. It's not whether you like the Chinese government. It's not about whether I like the North Korean government. There are just certain situations that supersede my desires, and Christians have understood this idea of a just war. In other words, the right thing to do is to intervene. It's actually been very rare in history. The Christian default position, the Christ follower default position is to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to all authorities. But that's a good question. And I think that's how Bonhoeffer resolved that in his mind. Well, you can see it gets thorny when you get into applying it. But first, you have to understand the principle. You have to see ourselves as part of an eternal plan of God, as chosen, as important in his plan, and we are part of what he is doing. So now when we turn our gaze onto some of these questions, we begin to look at it from a different perspective. Before I was a Christian, I used to look at it from, does this fit my morality? Does this seem to be right to me? Does it seem to be fair? As a Christian, I look at it and I say, how does my God want me to interact with this world in a way that's consistent with what he's doing? Radically different point of view. Next time, we're going to pick out probably the two most contentious of these issues. And uh, so I'm going to skip this part for the moment and uh, move on because we're out of time. But basically, our next one is we're going to talk about the uh, issue of slavery. Big deal in the ancient world. It's been a big deal in American history, but not even nearly as big as it was in the ancient world. And here's the question. Does the Bible condemn or condone slavery when it says slaves I want you to submit yourselves to your masters. That is a shocking thing to say. And I want to explore, what does that mean? Does that mean that we are okay with slavery? Or does it mean we're not okay with slavery? And then the second question gets to husbands and wives. And you're going to see the scripture say, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. How does that fit into this principle? Because both of those issues really do a headbutt with our culture today. And I'd like to take this framework we've built and really explore it. So next time we'll talk about the idea of slavery. Is it okay? Is it not okay? What's a Christian response? Wives and husbands. And the third topic he talks about is suffering. Marriage, suffering. Coincidence? I don't know. I won't comment on that. But that's what we're going to talk about. So Appreciate your, uh, your time. It's important to get the principle, though, because as you get to the practical problems, we're actually applying God's thinking to these, not our thinking anymore. I think you'll find the answer to both the slavery question and the husband and wife question to be mildly surprising. So hopefully we'll see you next week and we'll talk about that. Thanks. Thanks.